morning. <clears throat> Let's pray before we get started. Father, just thank you for uh, another day, again, for the opportunity to come together and worship. Uh, thank you for the fact that you are good God, that you're sovereign, that you're gracious and merciful, and that you have provided a way of escape from the consequences of sin. And as we look at the doctrine of sin today in your word, just pray that you would um, give us understanding, help us to recognize how wicked and how damaging and destructive sin is, uh, your attitude towards sin, how you hate it, pour out your wrath on it, pray that it would um, serve to um, grow our desire for holiness, to live lives that please you, to kill sin, and to do your will and not our own. Pray that uh, all that we do today would glorify and honor you, pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this week, today, uh, we're going to look at the doctrine of sin, and that's what theologians call homardiology. Next week, we will uh, look at the doctrine of salvation. After looking at sin today, we'll definitely want to look at the doctrine of salvation. Next week, that is called soteriology by theologians. And then the last two weeks, <clears throat> we'll uh, consider the doctrine of the church, which is ecclesiology, and the doctrine of the future, which is eschatology, things that will happen in the last days. So when it comes to sin, um, there's a lot of false ideas, if not just a flat-out rejection of the reality of sin in the world today. Uh, if you ask the average individual, they'll probably tell you that man is basically good. I hear that all the time. And that the problem's not... Uh, man's inherent nature, which they think is good, but the problem is a lack of education or a lack of opportunity, bad upbringing. People are basically the products of their society, their products of their environment, products of biological or psychological predispositions. People are victims of one or more of these factors, and they're not morally responsible for their actions. And with the rise of postmodernism, postmodern thought, um, that view is that there's no such thing as moral absolutes. Um, no absolute right and wrong, no uh, absolute good or evil. Every individual uh, determines what's right or wrong for them, what's good or bad for them. Uh, truth and morality are purely subjective. And the idea of an independent authority like God uh, determining what's good and evil, or worse yet, holding people accountable uh, to an absolute standard or even suggesting that people are sinners is, is just flat out rejected and it's even mocked. But Scripture is very clear that sin is a reality and that people are sinners. So, first question is, what is sin? Well, the Bible uses uh, a number of different words, first of all, to refer to sin. Uh, the theological term that um, I introduced earlier, homardiology, comes from the Greek word homardia, and I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, but that has the idea of missing the mark or to be in error, to be mistaken. That's homardia. And that's the word and idea that's conveyed in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They've all missed the mark. And then there's other Hebrew and Greek words that are used um, for sin, and they have meanings like 
uh, to rebel, to trespass, to betray. One example is in Isaiah 1-2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And then other words mean to transgress or to pass over unrighteousness, injustice, wandering or straying, lawlessness, particularly in regards to God's law. And 1 John 3, 4 says simply that sin is lawlessness. Then another Greek word has the idea of being disobedient and willfully resisting the will of God. And that's the idea in Romans 11, 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And another Greek word referring to sin is translated as ungodliness, wickedness, or impiety. And that's in Jude 18. And the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. <clears throat> There's other terms and meanings in Scripture, uh, but... But you get the idea. Sin is not one-dimensional. It's very complex and multifaceted. But at the core of all of this missing the mark, disobedience, rebellion, error, willful resistance, is the desire to be free from, independent of God and God's authority. The desire to be the one to make and enforce the rules. Essentially, the desire to be one's own God. That is at the heart of all sin. <clears throat> and you see this from the very beginning in the fall of Satan and the fall of Adam and Eve. Their desire was for independence from God and to be like a God. Isaiah 14, 14, uh, talking about Satan, says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And then in the garden, when Satan tempted Eve, um, Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan, Adam and Eve, as God's creation, we're actually obligated to, to love God, to obey God, to worship God, and they weren't satisfied with that arrangement. <clears throat> they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be independent of God. They didn't want to do God's will, but rather they wanted to do their own will. And in this desire for independence, this desire to be like God is the rejection of worship of God turns into the worship of self and worship of the creation rather than the creator. And that's blatant pride and idolatry, worshiping something other than God. And that's the, the gist of Romans one twenty five because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie <clears throat> and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So now with all of that in mind, <clears throat> Sin can be defined as any lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, thought, or action, whether committed actively or passively. The center of all sin is autonomy, which is the replacing of God with self. Always closely associated with sin are its products, pride, selfishness, idolatry, and lack of peace. Now, that that is a quote from MacArthur's text on theology, and 
Wayne Grudem's definition, a little bit simpler, he says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now, included in these uh, definitions is, is attitude. That's very important. The fact that sin is not just visible, blatant acts such as stealing, rape, lying, or murder, but also those hidden attitudes of the heart, which is actually where it begins. Uh, attitudes such as anger, lust, pride, envy. And those attitudes are first addressed in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet. <clears throat> and then in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus addresses uh, anger and lust, Matthew 5, 22 and 28, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So not just blatant acts, but attitudes of the heart are sinful. Sin is pervasive. It is all-encompassing. Literally everything in creation has been affected by sin, negatively affected by sin. There's no positive effect in sin. Every other doctrine in Scripture is related in some way to sin. The entire storyline of the Bible addresses the impact and manifestation of sin and God's dealing with it all the way from Genesis through Revelation. And, of course, the most evident impact or most evident effect is on mankind. As a result of sin, man has fallen from his original state of sinlessness Man is now born a sinner, and every relationship that people have has been affected negatively by sin. Our relationship with God, with other people, and with the rest of creation, all of those relationships. Every relationship has been corrupted by sin. Sin results in the death of everything in creation, and it corrupts and damages every aspect of who we are. Our very nature is sin. As a result of sin, <clears throat> mankind's ability to fulfill his created and ordained purpose to rule over the rest of creation, that has also been corrupted. Hasn't been removed, just corrupted. And as a result of sin and all its consequences, there is now the need for salvation, for man to be saved from sin and its consequences. And that's next week's topic. And you'll want next week topic after today. So, Where does sin come from? What is the origin of sin? Well, from Scripture, we know that when God was finished with creation, he declared everything was very good. So there was no sin in the very beginning, none whatsoever. But then Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to doubt God, to rebel, to become like God, which of course they give into and they sin. And then all sin and death is blamed on Adam. So that's the first time we see sin in the world. But at some point before this, and I think I talked about this last week, Satan, <clears throat> who was formerly known as Lucifer, an anointed guardian cherub, uh, he was created without sin. But he decided he wanted to be like God, and he did sin. Ezekiel 28, 15 
You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created, speaking about Lucifer, till unrighteousness was found in you. So originally, he was sinless, created blameless. So God's not at fault. The blame is on Satan for his sin. Just as Adam and Eve were created very good without sin or even any knowledge of sin, then Eve is deceived, but the key point here is that she made a willful choice to disobey God. She eats the fruit, then she gives it to Adam. Adam wasn't deceived, but he still disobeys God and eats. And as I said before, the blame for sin entering into the world is placed on Adam because he was a representative head of humanity. And Paul says this in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So since God is without sin and doesn't tempt anyone to sin, we know that from James 1.13, and since God created everything sinless in the beginning, did God at some point cause sin? God obviously created men and angels with the capacity or the possibility to sin in the exercise of their wills because they did. But at the same time, because of what Scripture teaches us about God's sinlessness, he can't be blamed for sin. He would not cause sin. He does not tempt to sin. Sin took place when Satan and Adam and Eve exercised their free will, okay? And they really did have free will at that point. Their will was free because it had not yet been enslaved by sin. So post-fall, man's will is not truly free. Man's will is enslaved by sin. But prior to the fall, free will, able to make choices for good or evil. So they exercise their will to disbelieve God. They exercise their will to disobey God. They exercise their will to fail to love, honor, and worship God, declaring their autonomy from God. So ultimately, the blame for sin lies squarely on uh, the created persons who chose to disobey, angels and men. And I mean, that is somewhat mysterious because God is sovereign, but he is incapable of sin. And everything was perfect in the beginning. I mean, now we make excuses for our sin. We blame, you know, various uh, agencies or people or causes for our sin. There was, there was nothing to blame for sin originally because everything was perfect. Everything was good. Everything was without sin. <clears throat> So, it's a mystery. Men and angels rebelled, even in this sinless creation. But that's the way it is. That's the way it was. Beyond that, we don't have any additional explanation in Scripture. So, then come the consequences of sin. We're familiar with that. Adam and Eve wanted to become like God. They believed Satan's lie, but instead, uh, they became less like God. They went from sinlessness to being corrupted and twisted by sin. 
They went from walking in perfect fellowship with God as their creator and Lord to hiding in shame and fear before God, who is now their judge. Adam says in Genesis 3.10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. That never happened before because I was naked and I hid myself. So sin first negatively affects man's relationship with God. That relationship is cut off, and now sin results in God's wrath on man. Wrath is his hatred of sin. Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And Romans 2, 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath is poured out in eternal punishment, and, and God has to punish sin because if he didn't punish sin, he would not be a just and holy God. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, speaking of this punishment, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <clears throat> so punishment. Sin also results in a hostile relationship between God and man. Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God before salvation. And Romans 8.7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So sin brings separation from God, brings God's wrath and punishment, hostility between God and man. Uh, that's that's one of, that is the biggest consequence of sin and results in a lot of other very negative consequences. Sin is not good. Sin is utterly wicked. Sin has also messed up human relationships, destroyed and damaged human relationships. Even in giving birth to a child now involves pain, tremendous pain. Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And the marriage relationship is negatively affected in that same verse, Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And that desire that the warm woman will have is not physical desire for her husband, but it's rather a desire to control her husband. So now there is struggle and conflict in marriage, which was created sinless, harmonious, loving, and a place of loving intimacy. But not anymore. And human relationships in general have been affected by sin. They manifest in, in conflict, hatred, envy, murder, war, and that also got a very early start <clears throat> uh, when Cain kills Abel. Genesis 4.8. So, affected human relationships. Um, sin has also impacted man's relationship with the rest of creation. Man is still under the mandate to rule over creation, but now that's been made much more difficult and frustrating. Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So you see right there, um, part of the curse was uh, they had to become vegetarians. So, yeah. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, and uh, 
until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So life on earth is now hard, and ultimately man will return to the earth in death. And this is the most devastating and comprehensive consequence of sin, death, and it's actually related to being separated from God. <clears throat> and God warned about this, um, that the consequence uh, for disobedience would be death in Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it affects everything and everyone. But sin's result, and, and it's not just physical death, um, that's one aspect of it. Death is more complicated than that. Death has a spiritual component, and it has a physical component, and it certainly has an eternal component. Spiritual death <clears throat> is uh, that separation or alienation from God. When sin entered the world through Adam, Adam and Eve died spiritually, and all people born into the world are born spiritually dead separated and hostile to God. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And that's spiritual death. And this spiritual separation from God also results in the unsaved individual being unable to comprehend or respond to spiritual truth because of his spiritual deadness. Romans 8.7-8, uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this, this relates to salvation because, <clears throat> and we'll get into this more detail next week, but because man is spiritually dead, he is incapable of doing anything about his dead state. Dead people can't do anything. All they can do is decompose. Only God can reverse that spiritual deadness through regeneration, making the dead come to life, making dead sinners alive. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trans trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. <clears throat> like I said, we will get much more into that next week. Sin also results in physical death, although uh, that didn't happen immediately with Adam as he lived for 930 years. It did happen eventually and it happened because Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, which they, were, they weren't forbidden to eat from the tree of life, but more fundamentally, they were cut off from God, who is the ultimate source of life. And that first human death took place, again, when Cain killed Abel. And then in Genesis 5, you see this list of Adam's descendants, and they all died. Everyone dies. <clears throat> with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, and those of us who get raptured prior to the Great Tribulation. <clears throat> Everyone dies. All living things die physically. Hebrews 9.27 affirms this, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
So um, spiritual death, physical death, and then finally <clears throat> sin results in eternal death. And eternal death is the ultimate consequence for dying physically while in a state of spiritual death, which is the state of all those who die in unbelief. Dying physically while continuing to reject the salvation that is in Christ. Dying while rejecting the gospel. This is what scripture refers to as the second death in Revelation 26. But this is not, um, it's not an end to existence. Okay? It's not annihilation as some false teaching asserts. Rather, it is um, continued eternal physical existence in the lake of fire, eternal punishment, eternally separated from the goodness of God, but conscious physical awareness and existence. Revelation 20, 14 through 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> and only people who have trusted in Christ and his work to atone for sin, his work on the cross, only those who have trusted in Christ and his work will escape this second eternal death. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, that's believers, over such the second death has no power. So, now, coming back to Adam, how did Adam's sin end up affecting or getting passed on to everyone that was born after him? <clears throat> That's the concept of original sin, which refers to Adam's first sin, but also involves the sinful state of mankind because of their connection to Adam. And that's clearly the case. <clears throat> All people born into the world have a sin nature, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that passage, it doesn't mean that uh, the act of conception was sinful, but rather that David was born sinful. And Ephesians 2.3 says, We were by nature children of wrath, translated sinful, like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> so how did that happen? Romans 5.12 um, says that it did come from Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we saw that passage before, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So sin entered through Adam. It spread uh, to everyone that came after him. Everybody dies and all sin. So does that simply mean that everyone sins or does it connect our sinfulness, our sin nature, to Adam's sin? Scripture does attribute our sinfulness to Adam's. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, um, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, by his disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's a parallel between uh, Adam and Christ. We'll look at that again next week. 
So the first part of 19 again says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And Romans 5.15 says that many died through one man's trespass. Again, that one man was Adam. So there is a direct connection uh, between Adam's sin and the sinfulness of his descendants, and that's all of humanity. But again, how does that connection work? There's a lot of different theories, and I'm not going to go through all of them, a lot of different explanations, but the one that most conservative uh, biblical scholars and theologians hold to, certainly those in the Reformed camp, is termed a representative headship, um, Reformed um, Reformed camp, particularly Presbyterians and Reformed churches, would call that federal headship. Um, basically, it means the same thing, representative headship. I'm going to give you a, a direct quote again from MacArthur's text <clears throat> that explains this position. Adam's sin is imputed, and that means to assign, ascribe, or credit to someone. Adam's sin is imputed to all who were united to him as the representative of humanity. Adam's guilt is our guilt. And while affirming that a corrupt nature is passed down from Adam to all his descendants, representative headship teaches that all people are condemned because of their direct relationship to Adam. The action of a representative, Adam, is determinative for all members united to him. When Adam sinned, he represented all people. Therefore, his sin is reckoned to his descendants. And one of the primary arguments for that position is the parallel comparison to the representative nature of Jesus' sacrifice. That's the passage we read earlier, Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Jesus' obedience and righteousness is imputed to those <clears throat> to those who trust in him, place their faith in him. And just as the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to believers, those who are in Christ, prior to that, the sin and guilt of Adam is imputed as well to those he represented, which is all of humanity. Christ's righteousness is imputed or placed on those he represents, believers, even though we're not righteous on our own merit, Likewise, Adam's sin and guilt is imputed or placed on those that he represents, all of humanity, even though we didn't commit his particular sin. So the fact is affirmed also in 5.14, Romans 5.14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So while this idea of representative headship focuses on the imputation of Adam's guilt to mankind, it also affirms that sin nature is inherited or passed down to all of Adam's descendants, and it doesn't say how that happens. Uh, those descendants, all of mankind, then sin, and, and everyone will be held accountable for their own personal sins. Okay? So that's representative headship, the transmission of sin and guilt. Uh, another aspect of this sin nature and corruption that is passed down from Adam to all of humanity is the reality of total or pervasive depravity. 
<clears throat> that's the T in the acronym TULIP, which summarizes the doctrines of grace. Total depravity. And what this means is that, first of all, sin has corrupted every aspect or part of an individual. Second, it means that because of the pervasiveness of sin, uh, people are completely unable to please God or do His will apart from divine intervention. And third, it means that the effect of sin is universal in that, as has been said before, everyone, every single human being is born a sinner. We don't become sinners, we are sinners. Total pravity, on the other hand, does not mean that people are as bad as they could be. We're not all Hitlers, we're not all Ted Bundys, but that is due to God's restraining grace. If he would remove that, we would all be the most horrific uh, examples of sin on earth. God is keeping sinful action in check. Now, people can do relatively good things, <clears throat> but the motive behind those actions, those good actions, is never out of a desire to please or honor God or do His will. They're generally selfishly motivated. Uh, total depravity does mean that every aspect or part of a person has been affected or corrupted by sin, and absolutely nothing escapes. Our bodies are affected by sin. They decay and fall apart, eventually stop working altogether. I'm beginning to experience that. And then as everything shuts down, we experience physical death. Spiritual self, our souls, uh, our hearts are corrupted by sin. That includes our thoughts, our desires, our reasoning, our affections. Everything about us has been corrupted by sin. Titus 1.5 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Other trans translations say that the heart is desperately wicked. John Calvin uh, said uh, that we are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. That's prior to redemption. Jesus made that pretty clear in John 8, 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And everyone prior to redemption does practice sin. That's, that's what characterizes their life. Scripture also affirms the second aspect of total depravity, which is that sin corrupted man can do nothing to please God. Romans 8, 7 through 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Scripture affirms the third aspect of total depravity, that sin's impact is universal. And you see that in 1 Kings uh, 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. And Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now because of the total effect of sin on man's spiritual condition, people are born, remain enemies of God, spiritually dead, unable to understand, to desire, or respond to spiritual truth. 
And again, this emphasizes the reality of God's total sovereignty over salvation, which we'll look at next week. Sin is bad, uh, but there is hope, salvation from this corrupting, enslaving, death-producing evil, and that salvation, of course, is in Christ and his atoning work on the cross. So uh, just to wrap this up, I want to address a couple of questions that some people have about sin. First of all, <clears throat> some sins, I'm sorry, are some sins worse than others? And the simple answer to that is yes. Although all sin places um, a person under God's wrath and judgment, no matter how insignificant that sin may seem to us, no sin is insignificant to God. Even the littlest so-called tiny white lie is a violation of God's holy character. But Scripture does say that some sins are worse than others. Ezekiel 8.13, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So a degree of abomination. Jesus said that the people who had delivered him to Pilate had the greater sin in John 19.11. And then in Matthew 11.20-24, Jesus said that the Jewish cities who had heard his message and seen uh, his works were going to fare far worse in the final judgment than uh, Gentile cities who hadn't. So everyone is guilty of sin uh, before God, and everyone will suffer eternal punishment for those sins, but some sins are worse than others. And I'm not going to go through a list of those things. Um, because God is just, though, the punishment for those worse sins will be qualitatively worse. Quantitatively, they'll be the same. Okay, It will be eternal. Qualitatively, it will be worse. The punishment will match the crime. Um, that's indicated by Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Their sin was worse, so the judgment will be worse. Um, Finally, okay, what is the sin that can't be forgiven, the unpardonable sin? Matthew 12, 31 through 32 is where you see that. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the context of this passage is Jesus is responding to the uh, Pharisees who've been accusing him of casting out uh, demons by the power of Satan, when in fact he was casting them out by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this sin was a failure to acknowledge or the rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And again, I want to quote MacArthur here. The unpardonable sin is the willful and final rejection of the Holy Spirit who is working through Jesus by attributing God's work in Christ to Satan. So after seeing firsthand what the Lord had done and hearing his teaching, these leaders made the final conclusion that he was satanic. Now, this is important. Since the conditions necessary for committing the unpardonable sin were limited to Jesus' earthly ministry, the sin itself was restricted to the time period of his ministry on earth. <clears throat> so that's MacArthur's position on it. Now, even though this specific unforgivable sin 
might have been limited to Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, uh, the continual unrepentant rejection of the gospel, uh, the forgiveness, the salvation that is available in Christ, that likewise will never be forgiven. Uh, Forgiveness and salvation is only through repentance and faith in Christ. Failure to repent, failure to place one's trust in Christ will result in condemnation. No forgiveness. So one more thing uh, regarding sin and believers. Uh, Our personal sin can't sever our union with Christ and result in the loss of salvation. Some false teaching would have us believe that, but once we are joined to Christ, we cannot be separated. It does, however, negatively impact our communion, our fellowship, our relationship with Christ. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, and it can bring about God's discipline on us. That's not punishment, okay? It's discipline, loving discipline. Revelation 3.19 and Hebrews 12.6 Uh, Both affirm that. Those whom I love, this is God speaking, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Okay? So our sin damages our relationship uh, with Christ, impairs that relationship, but it doesn't sever it. We can be disciplined for our sin, but that is not punishment. The punishment for our sins has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. What we receive is loving discipline. Now, uh, within the church, uh, someone who is living in unrepentant sin um, will result in removal from the church, church discipline. We have experienced that in this past year. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And then uh, sin, of course, continues to damage uh, the believer, certainly damages um, their relationship with Christ, damages their witness, It damages relationships, okay? Um, But again, that punishment has been placed on Christ. At the same time, we will give an account for everything that we have done, good or bad, sinful or righteous, and uh, what's bad will burn, and the good will remain as our reward. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 1 Corinthians 3.12 through 15. So that's all I'm going to give you this morning on sin. Do you have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 Prior to the fall? So, so after redemption, our, our wills are freer than they were before redemption. They are not fully free, I would say, because we still struggle with sin, with you know the sins that we may have been enslaved to, even though we are freed from that enslavement in redemption, but it is an ongoing struggle with remnants or that residual sin nature that we struggle with. So 
certainly freer than prior to redemption. Prior to redemption, there is no free will prior to redemption. You know, it makes it very clear. I would say not the same as Adam and Eve because there was no sin prior to the fall. We still struggle with sin and sin enslaved to a greater or lesser degree. Anybody else? Yeah. So, I'm not sure what... Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the, you don't have to engage in philosophical arguments. I don't think that those are profitable. You, you explain what Scripture teaches about that. And uh, the fact is, we have, there are things in Scripture that are a mystery. The fact that God is sovereign, that there was no sin. He didn't create sin. Everything that he created was good and sinless, and yet sin happened. And... Uh, the explanation for that is these beings who were without sin had free wills. They chose to sin. They chose to rebel. Beyond that, there is no explanation. So, so I think that's what you, what you do. I mean, it's the, you can't reason somebody into belief in Christ. You give them the gospel, and the Word of God does the work. The Holy Spirit does the work by applying the Word to the individual's heart. Yes. And I would say that that was true of Adam and Eve. But post-fall, that freedom is, is gone because Scripture repeatedly teaches us that we are enslaved to sin. We don't do our will. We do the will of sin. We do the will of our master, our father, who is the devil. You know? So we don't have freedom prior to redemption. We don't have the freedom that Adam and Eve experienced. So, but again, post-redemption, we do have the ability to love God. Prior to redemption, we don't. Prior to redemption, we hate God. We're enemies of God. God intervenes, gives us life, restores us to relationship with himself. Now we can love God. God has to act before we can respond with love and obedience and faith and worship. Okay? Anything else? Okay.
you're dismissed.